Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Mary's Song. It's based upon the lectionary readings for December 20th, 2020, the fourth Sunday in Advent. Over the next few weeks, we will hear a lot about Mary, the mother of Jesus. We'll hear about her obedience, her purity, her faith, her consent. We'll see her in outdoor nativity displays, draped in blue with downcast eyes and a beatific smile. We'll enjoy watching our children dramatize her story in virtual pageants on Christmas Eve. We'll honor her legacy in some of the most beloved prayers, liturgies, and carols we know. None of this is wrong, but on this fourth Sunday of Advent, I'd like to approach Mary from another angle. Before we celebrate Mary, the Virgin Mother, I want to linger over Mary, the prophet. Mary, the voice of the downtrodden. Mary, the singer of the Magnificat, God's gorgeous justice song. Growing up, I didn't hear a single sermon about the song Luke attributes to the teenage girl who gave birth to Jesus. No one told me that Mary's song comprises the longest set of words spoken by a woman in the New Testament. I didn't hear that Mary sang her prophetic song on her cousin Elizabeth's doorstep, while Zechariah, the official representative of God, endured his divine silencing. I didn't learn that the song is soaked in Jewish women's history, echoing the words and stories of Miriam, Hannah, Judith, and Deborah. I wasn't told that the Magnificat is one of the church's oldest Advent hymns, or that countless composers have set it to breathtaking music over the centuries. I had no clue that the song's socioeconomic and political implications are so subversive. Its lyrics have been banned many times in modern history. When the British ruled India, for example, the Magnificat was prohibited from being sung in churches. During the so-called Dirty War in Argentina, after the mothers of disappeared children postered the capital plaza with the words of the Magnificat, the military junta banned all public displays of the song. Mary's version of hope, they decided, was too dangerous a thing for public consumption. I'm grateful to know these things now, but I wish I had learned them earlier. I wish my earliest exposure to the nativity story had been framed by Mary's fiery justice song, because her understanding of God's intentions and actions fundamentally changed the story of the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. To illustrate what I mean, I want to highlight a few phrases from the Magnificat and reflect on what they have to offer us as we move closer to celebrating the birth of Jesus next week. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Before the Magnificat points to anything else, it points to joy. Specifically, it reminds us that the appropriate response to God's complicated presence in our lives is joy. Not fear, not guilt, not penance, not obligation. Joy. Indeed, deep and irresistible joy is at the heart of the entire Christmas story. The angel tells Zechariah that joy and gladness will mark John the baptizer's birth. When Mary arrives at Elizabeth's doorstep, Elizabeth's unborn baby leaps for joy. When an angel choir announces Jesus' arrival to the shepherds, they describe good news of great joy. We miss something essential about the life of faith when we gloss over Mary's insistence on joy. 
consider the circumstances into which she sings these amazing words. She is a peasant girl living under brutal imperial rule. She is unmarried and pregnant in a culture that considers it appropriate to kill young women in her condition. At this point in the story, it's not clear if her fiancé will stick by her. In fact, it's possible that she has run away to her cousin's house precisely because she feels vulnerable and threatened in her own hometown. And yet this young girl sings of joy. To me, her song demonstrates two things. Her baseline trust in the goodness of God and her imaginative capacity to frame her story as a story worth rejoicing over. Against all odds, she dares to believe that what is happening to her is not horror, not tragedy, not random, not meaningless. She doesn't succumb to the narrative swirling around her, narratives of shame, scandal, and sinfulness. Instead, she insists that her very body is infused with the presence and power of a God who acts decisively and generously in history, in her history, in her life. What would it be like to frame our own lives in this way? What would it be like to look for God in the most intimate details of our lives? What would it be like to make joy our bedrock? He has looked with favor on the loneliness of his servant. Surely, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Do you ever imagine God looking at you, regarding you, gazing at you? If yes, how would you characterize God's gaze? Are God's eyes on you frightening, cold, distracted, judgmental? Or are they patient and tender, warm and inviting? I love that Mary finds the gaze of God not just bearable, but wonderful. When God looks upon her, she is nourished and elevated. There is no hint of diminishment in her song. Its words are busting at the seams with a confidence born of being deeply loved. Mary senses God's pleasure and delight in God's long, loving look. Moreover, it's in Mary's loneliness that God favors her. In her loneliness, not in spite of it. God's gaze accepts Mary's poverty, her simplicity, her lack of sophistication and erudition, and favors her anyway, completely and exactly for who she is and what she is. I fear that many of us never allow ourselves to lean into God's delight in this way. We never dare to entertain the possibility that God looks on us with favor or that God's gaze lingers on us in love. What would it be like to do so? I know that the church often describes Mary as docile and unassertive, but I would suggest that there's something remarkably bold and even brazen in these lines of the Magnificat. Imagine the audacity of a young peasant girl, scandalously pregnant, peddling an angel story no one believes, living on the unremarkable outskirts of empire, to declare without shame or apology that she is favored of God. This is not the song of a spiritually timid human being. This is the song of a young woman on fire, a young woman passionately in love with the God who is passionately in love with her. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. After Mary sings her joy and God's delight, she finds the sharp edge of a prophetic voice and bursts into an anthem of hope and justice for the world's poorest, most forgotten, most brokenhearted, and most oppressed people. She describes a reality in which our sinful and unjust status quo is gorgeously reversed, The proud are scattered and the humble honored. The hungry are fed and the rich sent away. 
The powerful are brought down and the lowly are lifted up. In short, Mary describes a world reordered and renewed, a world so beautifully characterized by love and justice, only the Christ she carries in her womb can birth it into being. These lines, needless to say, are the lines that get Mary into trouble. These are the lines that have gotten the Magnificat banned at key moments in history. These are the lines we Christians feel a perpetual need to either tame or ignore, because we find them so deeply threatening to the lives we prefer to live. And yet, and yet there are moments when I'm drawn like a starving person to the world, Mary describes. Can you envision it, even just for a minute? A world without hoarding. A world without scarcity. A world in which our economic disparities don't get in the way of our fundamental kinship as human beings. A world in which the poor receive truly good things, not leftovers, not hand-me-downs, not miserly scraps that insult their dignity, but good things. A world in which our own cluttered, bloated fullness is mercifully taken away from us, so that in newfound emptiness we find room for all that is truly life-giving. Isn't that a world worth singing about, even if it costs us before it fulfills us? The thing is, Mary's song forever dismantles the self-protective walls we erect between our personal piety and God's insistence on systemic justice. We can't choose the first only and call it Christianity. To love the helpless infant who comes to us on Christmas Day is to love the one who grows up to raise valleys and level mountains, to liberate the oppressed and dethrone the arrogant. Imagine Jesus in his cradle, the Magnificat, a lullaby Mary pours into his ears and heart each night until his heart burns for justice as fiercely as hers does. This is the one we call God. To love this God is to yearn for a reordered world with the same passion and urgency Mary voices in her justice song. Notice, as Episcopal priest Barbara Brown Taylor does, that Mary describes these divine reversals as if they have already happened. He has brought down, he has filled. Prophets, Taylor writes, almost never get their verb tenses straight because part of their gift is being able to see the world as God sees it, not divided into things that are already over and things that have not happened yet, but as an eternally unfolding mystery that surprises everyone, maybe even God. What would it be like this Advent to mix up our tenses as prophets routinely do? to live into the topsy-turvy, upside-down world Mary foresees, to live as if that world is already here. The Messiah is at your doorstep, Mary sings across time. There is no unjust system, oppressive hierarchy, or arrogant leadership structure the Messiah will not upend, no promise the Christ will fail to keep, no broken, exploited life God will not save. What if we lived into these promises, insisted on these promises, in our day-to-day lives, right now. The Magnificat is a song of too much hope. Of course it is, because too much hope is precisely what we're called to cultivate and proclaim on this fourth and final Sunday in Advent. Can you do it? Can you find your voice and share it with the world more desperately in need than ever? What does your Magnificat sound like this year? How is God magnified through your unique perspective and vision? What stories of favor do you have to tell? What glorious reversals do you see heading your way? What words will you choose to describe the good news of the Messiah you carry? Don't wait. Sing it. Sing it now.
For books this week, Dan reviews The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory by Andrew Bacevich. With the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the standard wisdom of our establishment elites was that the West had won and won big. The United States was hailed as the sole superpower and the indispensable nation. We had reached what Francis Fukuyama infamously called the end of history and the triumph of Western neoliberal capitalism as the only viable political system for all of humanity. It was a period of euphoric optimism. Confident that anything was possible, our political elite crafted what Andrew Basevich calls a new consensus or operating system that consisted of four elements. Wealth creation for all through globalized neoliberalism, global leadership that spread American values throughout the world by military hegemony, personal freedom construed as unlimited and unmoored autonomy, and then presidential supremacy that granted that office quasi-monarchical prerogatives. Reagan, Bush Sr. and Jr., both of the Clintons, Obama, and all the rest can be seen as interchangeable parts in this consensus. To question this new orthodoxy guaranteed your insignificance. The last 30 years have shown this cheery consensus to be painfully naive and irretrievably defective, says Basevich, fraught with all sorts of hubris, contradictions and delusions, like runaway deficits, institutional racism, gun violence, grotesque income inequality, endless wars, technological dystopia, environmental degradation, climate change, and dysfunctional government. The reason why Trump won the election in 2016 was because he was the only one of 23 candidates who told the truth about the abject failure of this political consensus. He then tapped into the rage of ordinary citizens who might not articulate the failures of the political consensus, but who bore the brunt of its worst effects. He became a champion of the aggrieved. He was not the cause of all our turmoil, but in effect. Basevich even argues that Trump, however deplorable, is a distraction and a sideshow, and that by being obsessed with his many failures, we have missed the bigger, deeper, and grimmer picture, the tragedy unfolding on a grander scale. Trump merely embodied and laid bare the accumulating contradictions of American life. Aggravating all of this are the hyperbolic promises that our politicians feed us, which promises are impossible to fulfill. Basevich begins his book with a quote from James Baldwin's Notes of a Native Son. Quote, in America, life seems to move faster than anywhere else on the globe, and each generation is promised more than it will get, which creates in each generation a furious, bewildering rage, the rage of people who cannot find solid ground beneath their feet. End quote. He concludes on his very last page with Edmund Burke in, 19, in 1756, quote, The great error of our nature is not to know where to stop and thereby to lose all that we have gained by an insatiable pursuit after more. End quote. So the question remains, can we move beyond our understandable but misplaced scapegoating of Trump and a defunct view of our role in the world in order to craft an understanding of what it means to be American in the post-Cold War period? For films this week, Dan reviews Cue Ball. The San Quentin State Prison, about 40 miles north of San Francisco, is the oldest prison in California, founded in July of 1852. It might also be the baddest. It is California's only death row facility for men. It still has an unused gas chamber, the largest in the country, and has been the subject of all sorts of concerts, Johnny Cash, B.B. King, 
books, films, videos, podcasts, ear hustle, and television dramas. Today it houses nearly 4,000 prisoners, some of whom really are, as the warden calls them, the bad, bad boys. But as this documentary film shows, there are also many inmates at San Quentin who are very much on the road to redemption. In particular, this movie features the prison basketball program and its San Quentin Warriors, which was founded in collaboration with the NBA Golden State Warriors. There are two stories here. The one is how the basketball program has been a force for good, as the prisoners look forward to the grand finale at the end of the season when they play the Warriors development team, coaches and staff. Then there are the personal stories that the inmates tell about how they ended up in prison, their fears, their regrets and their hopes. And hope, observes the warden, is a real currency inside a prison. I watch this film on Netflix. And lastly, for poetry on this last Sunday of Advent, Annunciation by Denise Levertov. We know the scene, the room variously furnished, almost always a lectern, a book, always the tall lily. Arrived on solemn grandeur of great wings, an angelic ambassador, standing or hovering, whom she acknowledges, a guest. But we are told of meek obedience. No one mentions courage. The engendering spirit did not enter her without consent. God waited. She was free to accept or to refuse. Choice, integral to humanness. Aren't there enunciations of one sort or another in most lives? Some unwillingly undertake great destinies, enact them in sullen pride, uncomprehending. More often those moments when roads of light and storm open from darkness in a man or a woman are turned away from in dread, in a wave of weakness, in despair and with relief. Ordinary lives continue. God does not smite them, but the gates close, the pathway vanishes. She had been a child who played, ate, slept like any other child, but unlike others, wept only for pity, laughed in joy, not triumph. Compassion and intelligence fused in her, indivisible. Called to a destiny more momentous than any in all of time, she did not quail, only asked a simple, How can this be? And gravely, courteously took to heart the angel's reply, perceiving instantly the astounding ministry she was offered, to bear in her womb infinite weight and lightness, to carry in hidden finite inwardness nine months of eternity, to contain in slender vase of being the sum of power, in narrow flesh the sum of light, then bring to birth, push out into air a man-child, needing like any other milk and love, but who was God? This was the moment no one speaks of, when she could still refuse, a breath unbreathed, spirit suspended, waiting. She did not cry, I cannot, I am not worthy, nor I have not the strength. She did not submit with gritted teeth, raging, coerced. Bravest of all humans, consent illumined her. The room filled with its light, the lily glowed in it, and the iridescent wings. Consent, courage unparalleled, opened her utterly. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for December 20th, 2020. 
I'm Debbie Thomas.